You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hey, Kiefer, how's it going? Good. And, um, Today, we've got Mark Sisson on the line. I'm not even going to waste time with anything else uh, other than our sponsors, High Lead Athletic Wear. Luckily, there's only one. Uh, check them out on the website. But um, yeah, we're just going to jump into it. I've been waiting actually a long time to meet <clears throat> or to speak with Mark. Uh, I got to meet him for, like I think, maybe 10 seconds at Paleo FX this year. Um, and that was about it. So glad to have you on the show, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, we, so bef- before we called you in, Rocky and I were talking about um, the difference between, and I hear this all the time, people, you know, whenever I'm with paleo people, they're like, oh, I'm not paleo, I'm primal, so it's okay. So <laughs> we, we wanted to, you know, just start there with, you know, what what is it that differentiates primal from paleo or is there even really a differentiation anymore other than you know say dairy or or a, a focus on food allergies yeah you know that 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 line demarcation has been narrowing um the margins have become thinner and thinner as as time goes on it started out um and i sort of offered up primal as a kinder gentler paleo uh, with with deference to dairy in the diet, which paleo was quite strict about not having any. Um, but if you go to the original Primal Blueprint concept, it was a full-on lifestyle. So it was, yes, it, it paid close attention to the diet, but it also uh, has always been uh, very attentive to other aspects of epigenetics, how we move, how we sleep, how much sun exposure we get, um, play, using your brain, ex- uh, exposure to uh, microbes in the dirt, and just all manner of human behaviors that went far beyond just the diet. And initially, the paleo was just really about the diet. Paleo and the lifestyle of paleo has, I think, come to embrace more of those other lifestyle concepts. But if we do just sort of uh, focus on the diet for a brief period here, um, you know, the the original paleo was lean meats. And as Cordain uh, sort of proposed, it was to avoid, continue to avoid saturated fats in the early days of paleo and and certainly all dairy and all grains and all legumes um, and to a certain or to, to the large part, all alcohol which made it uh, really restrictive. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't a, a, a great place to start for a lot of people who had otherwise had a horrendous diet for most of their lives. And this concept of eliminating all of those potential um, bad guys was a good concept. If, you, if you're going to do an experiment, if you're going to embark on some eating experiment, uh, you're probably better off getting rid of a lot of things at first and just including those things that you know to be benign uh, which is sort of what Dallas and Melissa did with Whole30. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the years, uh, and so so just to follow through that, when I developed the Primal Blueprint, I said, look, this is I don't want this to be about struggle and sacrifice. I want this to be about having fun, enjoying your life, 
to some extent, even being hedonistic when it's appropriate. And uh, with that in mind, I crafted the primal blueprint eating strategy to include as many foods as possible, having done research that suggests that some of these foods that we're including are not bad for you. So I, uh, early on, I was a big proponent of saturated fat and said, look, there's nothing wrong with saturated fat. It's not the proximate cause of heart disease. There's no reason to eliminate it from, from the diet. In fact, there's every reason to include it, provided you get rid of sugar and refined starches and grains and things like that that might be it might be um, uh, a, a reason that fats were even looked at as, uh, as a bad guy early on. Um, I looked at the research on red wine and said, look, there's good research on red wine that suggests that a little bit of wine consumption is probably not a bad thing. And uh, with that in mind, um, I'm going to include that as, as what we call a sensible indulgence. Um, I looked at dairy and said, you know, it's interesting, this whole concept of dairy and lactose intolerance uh it everybody's lactose tolerant when they're born that's what you know how you get most of your nutrition as a hunter-gatherer for the first four years is from breast milk so you you have to have uh, the ability to produce a lactase enzyme the fact that you lose it um over uh over the rest of your life or or not Mm -hmm. uh, is sort of an anomaly and and the idea that you might be able to maintain it by continuing to present to the body an opportunity or a reason to maintain it, i.e. drinking dairy. So for a lot of people who are lactose tolerant, I said there's no reason to avoid dairy. If you're lactose tolerant, if you don't have a problem with, with, with milk, particularly with uh, whole fat cream and butter and, and things that don't have so much casein and uh, and have not been homogenized, pasteurized, and otherwise destroyed. There's no reason to exclude dairy, which you know I'm a big fan of cheese. So I, so I created this this program that has, you know, uh, opportunities to eat a lot of things that the original paleo program did not allow. And um, that was the God. I'm going on. I'm rambling on about this. So stop me when you've heard enough. But no, no, but go it's on. The, the entire great. history of paleo and primal, but. Uh, and over the years, I've noticed, uh, you know, with some amusement that the paleo community has kind of come around and said, well, you know, maybe a little bit of dairy isn't that bad and saturated fat was never that bad. So let's include some saturated fat. In fact, let's make bacon the, you know, sort of the iconic food right. of the community. Uh, and so that so they have started to come closer together. And I'm appreciative of that because at the you know, at, at, at its essence, both of these are templates for an eating strategy that still would suggest that the individual start by just noticing what happens when you eat certain foods and when you eliminate certain other foods and and using that experiment of one, craft for oneself an individual eating strategy. Sounds as simple and logical as it could possibly get. <laughs> right. So where does it go all sideways then? Well... It's simple and logical. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because people... I think get so into the concept and the theory uh, that they become dogmatic to a fault, and uh, the you know I see a lot of this. It's all the, the term orthorexia is bandied about as well. You know these these paleo people and these primal people are so concerned about what they're eating. Uh, if it's not grass fed beef, they don't eat at a restaurant, or if it's if it's not hundred uh, percent full fat dairy, or if it contains any residual effect if it was if it was made on a 
bottling line at one t- at one time bottled soy. We're not going to go there. And, right. and and my life is a whole lot simpler than that. I really this is this is where the eighty twenty rule came in. In fact, which was basically you know strive to do really well, strive for perfection. But if you come in at eighty percent, if you go to a restaurant and they don't have grass fed beef, but they've got some great cut of beef from uh, a reputable supplier and it was raised hormone and antibiotic free. There's no reason you shouldn't have that cut of meat. Uh, if you go to a friend's house and they're having a birthday party and they offer up some amazing chocolate cake, uh, there's no reason you shouldn't have a couple of bites. You know, it's it's really about um, maintaining uh, some semblance of balance and sanity uh, and fully fully intending to enjoy. I mean, here's my, my, my thing is I enjoy every bite of food I ever eat. So I don't limit myself to stuff that's, quote, just good for me. I mean, I don't want to hold my nose and choke down some, you know, uh, kale salad without any dressing on it just because somebody said this was the healthiest food in the world. You know, I want to enjoy every bite of food that I eat, and I want to be satisfied from whatever meal it is that I'm consuming. And to that end, I, I do cut corners every once in a while, and, you know, it's just as long as I'm not consuming um, vast quantities of of uh, sugars and refined grains and nasty oils, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be a healthier person. So it's a, you know, it's sort of not, an, it's, it's, it's not like you're all in or not. There's a, a, it's a linear process for a lot of people. And just, just eliminating sugars and refined grains for some people gets them 80% of where they need to be with regard to their body composition and, and their um, progress toward, toward a healthier body. Yeah, that's the inter- interesting thing that I find is, you know, for myself, you know, people are always like, especially recently, because, you know, just the flux in my life and everything, I haven't been working out um, very much at all, uh, embarrassingly so. And all I do is walk and and I just recently moved back to uh, the Bay Area and all my friends are seeing me and they're like, man, you look great. What have you been doing? And I'm like, well, nothing. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean nothing? And it's like, you know, did you change your diet? I'm like, no, actually, my, you know, I eat pretty much whatever I want when I want. And, you know, really all I do, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really working out. I'm, I'm walking a lot now and I've maintained great shape, great body composition. And I haven't even paid attention to my diet that much. And the only thing that I do personally, which, you know, isn't paleo or primal or whatever, it's, you know, my own principles. If I'm going to eat carbs... I'm going to eat them at night. And that's really the only limitation I put on myself whatsoever. And sometimes I even break that. Uh, it was funny. Somebody put on my Facebook post because they caught me at breakfast a couple months ago and I was eating biscuits and gravy. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, my God, why is Kiefer having carbs for breakfast? What's going on? It's like, well, you know, I wanted biscuits and gravy and this place closes at noon. So my only opportunity to eat their biscuits and gravy was breakfast. Yeah, and I'm going to bed right after this. So that, um, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and I'm going to take a five-hour nap, so it all works out somehow. Yeah. Um, you no, know, it's, and, funny you, it's funny you say that because I've, I've jokingly said it's better to look fit than to be fit. And, <laughs> and it sounds like you're going down that path right now, which is, which is one of – and then the irony is, of course, if you do what it takes to look fit, you're probably fit. You know, you're probably right. – uh, this idea that walking is sufficient for most people to maintain – um, you know, some, some form of movement is good for the body. <clears throat> doesn't mean that you have to be doing marathons. In fact, 
walking is far more appropriate for most people. Yeah. And 80% of your body composition happens as a result of how you eat, not how you exercise. So you are following that, that path. You know, it's, it's, it's really important to, um, I just want to kind of go off on this little tangent here about movement. Um, but movement, um, even just like you say, even just walking, something that just gets your basal heart rate up just a little bit, it's probably all you need from a cardiovascular benefit as well. I mean, you know, we, Mark, we do exercise testing here in our office, and it's just amazing how many people I tell, you know what, once you back off and just start doing some walking, you know, or, you know, once you do a little bit of elliptical work for maybe 20 minutes, you know, three times a day. It, you know, and, and it's interesting, the heart rate training zones we give them are significantly dialed down. It's not like they're doing these, you know, hour-long hit sessions of high-intensity work. It's, it's usually majority of the time it's dialing people down. So I think that's something that really needs to be stressed and people really kind of don't really get acutely attuned to that because they're always kind of seeing whatever the talking heads on social media are kind of talking about. So Yeah, no, I mean, and I'm a fan of... Of high intensity stuff, but not not for an hour. No way. I mean, it's right. like my intensity stuff is going to be uh, fifteen to maybe thirty minutes uh, with breaks in between, and you know, one or two times a week. But that's what that's one of the things that I do to sort of get to the next level of fitness. I could maintain what I'm doing with what you talk about with the low intensity walking and you know some the occasional arduous hike if you want to you know put that term in there mm-hmm. but otherwise i don't i wouldn't need to do that much but i do need to do my high intensity stuff every once in a while yeah and it, it just you know for a lot of people it comes down to what are your goals when like you know i'm i've got set up with a gym again you know i'm gonna go back in and and do all the things i used to do but you know there's a period in my life where that worked well enough and for some people like that's what their whole life is you know they just need it to be to work well enough and make it easy. I, you know, I've, so recently I've run into this several times with several people going out to dinners. Um, this focus on like gluten and dairy and all these different things that they're allergic to. And I'm just like once, one time I would like to go out to dinner with somebody and not worry about all the things on the menu they're going to tell me they can't eat. Yeah. Well, I, I used to have a, <clears throat> thing that I tell people, I say, you, you can put me in any restaurant in this country and I can still order something off the menu that's going to be appropriate for me. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it, just, it just adds a little bit of a challenge. Are you willing to speak to the waiter and ask if the chef can prepare you a plate of uh, grilled vegetables or an omelet that, that you request is cooked in real butter or, you know, just it's not that difficult and to to forage on yeah. the menu of a, uh, right. you know, of any restaurant, really. It's modern day foraging. Yes. And it, it's true. I, you know, even the smallest restaurants um, to the chains, they're all willing to, to make changes. I've, I've never, I've never personally had any problems. Um, you know, my, my strategy is a little looser than most, but because uh, I just care about carbs, but I've, you know, even Cheesecake Factory, I can go in there and find something with minor modification that will work perfectly. Right. It'll work perfectly, and you'll eat a quarter <laughs> of it and take the rest home and live off it for a week. Right. Right. They do have, like, the most amazingly large portions it's ever. Yeah. Except uh, their salmon portions are, like, the smallest ever. That's oh, really? it, right? I, I mean. <laughs> yeah. That's because salmon is expensive. Um, yeah. No, I had a, I had an interesting um, – Experience early on in my career, I was uh, giving a talk 
in um, outside of Sacramento, and uh, it was it's been a long day already. And, and normally, I can go without eating. It's I sort of brag about my ability to intermittently fast. But I was about to deliver a three hour seminar that night, and I hadn't eaten during the day. So I said, I got to go just get something to eat, just to stoke the furnace a little bit. And there was a great sigh and apology. The only place we have is this Mexican restaurant down the street. It's within uh, striking distance. And I said, and they, they were going, and you know, it's just beans and rice and tortillas. And so I walk in and I say, uh, all right, give me a double carne asada with a side of guacamole. I mixed them together and made one of the best meals I ever had in my life, you know? So mm-hmm. you, you can, you can use your imagination and come up with a lot of great things. Yeah. Why is that so difficult for people? I don't know. I think there's a, there's a, in the back of their minds, they want, they want it to be difficult. They want to, you know, uh, and I and I get you know the gluten the gluten free crowd, um, some of whom have serious issues and and need to be very mm-hmm. uh, aware of that. But most of whom I think could probably get away with a lot more than they think they can get away with. Yeah, I think s- some people and their relaying of their personal stories and how sensitive they are to gluten has caused this hypersensitivity to it just mentally without even the physical side effects. You know, I know, I don't know how many people have told me they're deathly allergic to gluten and, you know, they're so healthy now and they're actually on a very low carb diet and, you know, things are going great. And I talk them into having something that they're terrified of. And the next day they're like, oh my gosh, I feel great. Yep. And it's, you know, part of it is now, especially, you know, they have that sense of freedom that they don't have to be so scared when they do want to treat themselves in some way or you know like you said there there's a birthday cake and you know now they know they can have a slice without you know killing themselves because they thought they were more allergic to gluten than they actually are or beating themselves up for the next two days yeah yeah mentally there's so many things like you know it it just makes such a huge difference stress levels you know if you think about it how I always try to explain it to people is when when they tell me, well, I cut out gluten and I felt better. And then, you know, and, I, and I'm telling them that maybe it's worth trying it again because they've, you know, just, you know, on the off treat, just because they've gotten so much healthier. And like, well, you know, I don't know. And I'm like, well, you know, think about it. You've compounded all the, you had all these stresses compounding on you at one time. And, you know, gluten was just another one of those stresses. Like, f- you know, food can have chemicals that are a stress for our body to process. And I was like, and so you've eliminated all these stress stresses. You're in a really good place in your life. You, your body can probably handle that little bit of stress. So why include extra stress every time you go out for a meal when maybe you don't have to? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, once they do that, they just... It, it, it's almost amazing to change because all of a sudden I'll have friends that never want to go out to eat with me ever. And then they're like, Hey, you know, you know, every opportunity, Hey, there's this new restaurant that just opened up. I want to try it out. You want to go with me? I'm like, yes. Yep. Um, it, it's just almost a total, total shift for some people. And it's just like, yes, you can enjoy food. I know, I work with uh, Alex Navarro and Mary Guinness with their website, and they've got a great tagline, and it's "Life is not a diet; enjoy every bite." Yeah, that's good. No, that's sort of my yeah. That's sort of my mantra. Yeah, yeah. That's what made me think of it when you said that. That's kind of the same thing, and you know, if more people would just kind of not. Yeah. So, be- the, so the whole the whole purpose of the Primal Blueprint 
which is an educational experience from my perspective. I try to educate people on um, how the body works and how they can regain uh, their health and take back control of their health and and rebuild, renew, regenerate uh, their bodies. The whole sort of purpose is to ultimately arrive at an intuitive sense about choices you make. So you don't have to overthink it. You don't have to, again, Im- impose some some guilt upon yourself for having made an inappropriate choice. You just move on to the next thing. But to be able to, to, to look at any particular situation and say without – Without hesitation, oh yeah, I can do that, or oh no, I'm not going. I'm going to choose not to do that. But from a real intuitive perspective, as opposed to oh wait, what does Mark say about this? Let me see. Uh, <laughs> there was a post two years ago where he wrote, he gave some numbers about you know, no, no, no. So it's I really want people to just enjoy life. That's my intention is to get the most out of life, to be content, happy, peaceful, satisfied. Um, you know, just. Just and and you know we have this other we have a T-shirt that says "Live long, drop dead," but it basically <laughs> means you know it basically means live well, live long, um, have a great time, and then when it's time to go, you know, keel over. Don't just uh, spend the next fi- the last fifteen years in some declining, you know, drooling position. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I've got to get one of those T-shirts. Live long, drop dead. So on the uh, dairy, before you got on, Mark, um, Rocky has developed, uh, ever since we talked to Dr. Gundry, Rocky's developed more of a fascination actually than I have with casein and the alpha one and alpha two variants. <clears throat> you have any, any commentary on that? I, I'm kind of convinced that it, there's a very, very small population that that's going to matter in. Um, and, well, that, uh, and I think A2 Rocky's gets, on the fence. Yeah, the A2 group has gotten a real uh, – they've, they've – you know, the, there's, a, there's a company I think called A2 now and there's a couple of uh, um, lobbying efforts in Australia to uh, sort of take a look at, um, you know, how they can, how they can um, not require it but have it be um, certified in, in certain – uh, dairy cattle and dairy cows and things like that. So, I think there's something there. I, I you know, as I look into it, it's a, it's it's an interesting, uh, the you know, the idea that that the, the difference between the A1 and the A2 is a couple of positions mm-hmm. on a on a protein that has something I forget, 67 amino acids or something like that. That uh, Rocky probably know more about this than I do, but uh, that the that that some people have a difficult time digesting uh, that that casein and it creates some. Um, Beta, beta casein, morph, morphine-like, opiate-like substances, and there's a whole bunch of uh, of work that's investigative in, in that. And yet, I really don't, you know, I, I haven't seen it much in the United States enough to be um, to be thoroughly convinced that that's that that's the issue. Is that obtuse enough an answer for you? Yeah, no, that's probably man. right where you need to be. <laughs> right. yeah, I, I'm just starting to peel the onion on this as well among uh, many different rabbit holes. I tend to open at the same time, and I just pulled some research last week, which I haven't really had a chance to really take a great look at. But yeah, it is it is that beta beta casein morphine, morphine uh, BCM is what they call it in the research tri- uh, journals I've been reading um, as the key factor there, and found it. You know when metabolite when when A one is metabolizing, not when A two is. So it is interesting though. I did most of that research is coming from down under, from Australia and New Zealand, and um, I haven't seen anything recently. But some of it's from like the late '90s, early 2000s, talking about 
the relation between alpha-1 and autism, ischemic and cardiovascular heart disease, um, as well as risk for type 1 diabetics in children. So, but I've also seen um, counter articles as well saying that, the, that, the, that the, the research really doesn't support the potential link and obviously more studies need to be done. But I, I find it interesting just because of, um, you know, like I said, there are many... There are many patients, um, and I'm sure probably people who come on your blog who either eat paleo or eat primal. Never mind, maybe I'd say it's probably 10, 15 percent of them. Maybe 15 percent is a little high, where they'll have some really, really uh, imp- significant improvements in their health. I mean, body composition improves, blood pressure goes away, they go off of medications. I mean, everything's great and dandy, and the only thing that goes screwy um, are the lipids. And so, uh, one of the things that uh, Dr. Gundry had alluded to is and that maybe that one of the, this A1 casein issue might be one of the issues that he'll find that if these patients um, have really, really off the rock or lipids, they'll take the A1 casein out of their diet and, and it gets better. But I, I tried doing that myself for a month and didn't really see much of a difference, but maybe that wasn't long enough of time. So, yeah, I'm not sure that the, that the lipid um, issues which typically manifest themselves in an increase in, um, in LDL, uh, are necessarily related to the A1. And, and personally, I, I'm not a milk drinker, never have been. Um, I like, it's kind of weird. I, I'm, I'm okay with dairy. I love cheese. Um, I like full fat yogurt. Um, I slather every vegetable I ever eat in butter. Uh, you know, I put heavy cream in my coffee. So it's not like I avoid dairy. It's just that just drinking milk never appealed to me. It didn't have the right taste to me. So if you look at all the things that I do consume, there's not much casein left in them anyway. Um, either the cheese has been sort of, um, part, you know, pre-digested. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the obviously the butter and the and the um, and I use whey protein isolate, for instance. So I, I manufacture a, a product using the the gold standard of of um, protein powders, the whey protein isolate, which is a byproduct of the cheese manufacturing industry using the whey, but getting having gotten rid of the lactose and casein. Uh, so I don't really encounter casein that much in my in my world. And I could so I couldn't give you a good give you an opinion uh, on that. And 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 I would probably tell people in general to avoid protein powders that have significant amounts of casein as the primary source of, of protein. Yeah, it's interesting when you you think about that because I don't. People ask about dairy all the time, and and that's kind of a a weird thing. Is like I also I never drink milk. I can't actually think of the last time I had milk. Um, it's always you know heavy cream or butter those things, and and people don't realize how different in composition those are from milk. They just think oh dairy, it's all dairy. Yep. I'm allergic to dairy. I can't have butter. I'm like, if you're allergic to butter you have a, a serious, serious issue that you need to go in for. Yeah. You know, there's something really wrong with you. Yeah. Because there's really not much left in butter that you could be allergic to. Exactly. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been the same way. I've never really been a milk drinker myself either, so I never, it never really appealed to me. So, But certainly all the other products you mentioned um, are outstanding. <laughs> no, they are. I mean, they, they're, they, they, outstanding is a great word. They add, they add – an entire dimension to a meal or to, um, uh, you know, the, the list of foods that somebody who's engaging in a style of eating can access uh, that for, for the most part, a lot of early paleo uh, people who were, 
you know, putting people onto elimination programs and then forever keeping them off would, would just neglect entirely and say, well, no, stay away from dairy. Um, you know, legumes is another one. Stay away from legumes entirely. Well, you know, I've, I've sort of come, uh, the pendulum has swung back a little bit, in my opinion, on the, on the legume thing. And there's certain types of beans that probably are offering up some resistant starch that, that if you've uh, become adapted to them, are benefiting you more than they're harming you. So there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in human digestion right now, and and with within the paleo community, the discussion of safe starches, which began two and a half three years ago, and then the introduction of resistant starches. Um, a, lo- a lot of there's been a lot of um, of um, uh, you know I, was, well, I won't say back and forth. Well, there has been back and forth, and mm-hmm. now that now the camps are sort of you know, becoming divided. There's a lot of, not a lot of, there's some paleo people who are suggesting that, oh yes, three, 400 grams of carbs a day is not a bad thing, provided you get them all from, from, uh, potatoes or from tubers or safe starches. And, you know, I would never suggest that to anyone other than a very specific type of high, uh, high intensity athlete. Um, I, I've created a, a carbohydrate curve, um, eight years ago, nine years ago, the, the primal blueprint carbohydrate curve where I, people sort of fell on the spectrum and it really only went up to 150 grams a day. And after I just said, really nobody needs more than 150 grams of carbs a day, unless you're really like a, a Steve door, you know, lo- unloading ships at the dock or you're an, a high intensity athlete. Uh, most people can get by very nicely, uh, very conveniently on 150 grams of carbs a day, which, by the way, is where you fall into if you eliminate sugars and refined grains and and most other grains. And if you limit yourself to uh, as many vegetables as you want, a little bit of fruit, um, maybe a, a serving legumes a day, you'd, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to exceed 150 grams of net carbs a day anyway. Yeah, and, you know, really, you know, e- even that amount is, you know, in my opinion, I mean, you know, you know my stuff. I'm very low carb most of the time, and then you know, basically just shifting carbohydrates around uh, when you would eat them and whatnot. But yeah, you know the 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 amount of carbohydrates you need is very minimal. You could argue zero. Uh, your body can produce all you need. Um, but there's this, um, you know, I I almost feel like. Paleo has uh, there's a couple couple things with carbs you know one there it it's almost like okay well maybe this diet was too restrictive it's too hard we're looking at these people who are doing something like say CrossFit or triathlons and they're not doing that well on paleo anymore and they're better when they eat more carbs therefore we can open up that door and say okay well you know we've got safe starches. Um, you know, what, one of my favorites is, you know, white potatoes are, are safe now. Um, even though that should be one of the most dangerous foods ever, because if you're of European descent, you've only had it in your diet for 500 years. Um, but it's like, oh, well that's, that's obviously a safe paleo food. And I just feel like there's this, you know, it's hit that point where it's all about trying to get as many people to just be on it as possible without even thinking about the ramifications thereof. Uh, you, you can look, uh, you can go down to the mitochondria and look at how carbs have to be metabolized before they're used for fuel and the toxins that that could produce and the processes that that turns off. And if you're oversaturated, you can actually start to activate the oncogenes. 
um, which the process is to clean things up so the oncogenes don't get turned on or shut down because you've got so many carbohydrates. And, you know, all of that, I, I feel like all of that's being lost because everybody's trying to stick to this just story. It's like, oh, it's this is the story of paleo. There's these foods that are safe. Um, and as long as we stay with safe foods, nothing else matters. And I just, I think there's this huge physiological component um, that it that is strongly being ignored, and it's being ignored with comments like, um, you know, somebody I won't mention their name because you know I like their work and I like like a lot of the things they've done. But you know, one of their sayings is, "You're only as healthy as your gut," and that to me doesn't make any sense, really. When you look at all the research, your gut's only as healthy as you. I mean, it's not like a bunch of gut bacteria got together and said, hey, if we grow a human around ourselves, we're going to be really adapted as we move on into later generations. You know, that that's not what happens. Matrix, Matrix 4. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We're, we're all a simulation for bacteria. You know, that's yeah. not what happened. We were invaded by it, and the bacteria learned to adapt to us. So if we're eating a diet that makes us healthy – well, guess what? The bacteria in our body turns out to end up healthy as well. But if we eat a diet that makes us sick, the bacteria actually adapts to help us in our goal, um, which unfortunately is is not a very good goal. And the bacteria is not doing anything specific. It's just, you know, it's trying to go along with – it's trying to ride the wave and help us out because it depends on us. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, ignoring a lot of these processes is – um, some, some of the things, I mean, one reason I like your philosophy, Mark, is, you know, you're more, it's just a blueprint and what you say is going to get people healthy and that's your focus. And then everything else falls into place instead of the backwards of, well, let's focus on this minutia, this minutia and this minutia. And if we do, then you'll magically get healthy. I think those are two very different messages that cause, uh, different kind of psychological states in an individual trying to achieve health. Yeah, it's interesting. I I'm, I'm had a, a philosophical discussion um, within my company this year, and I have I have 22 employees. We've got a you know a, a nice little company based in Malibu here, but um, some of what we do is virtualized. So, um, with I have employees across the country actually, uh, but we have this discussion as to whether we should maybe think about. Um, I, I'm not. I don't want to say distancing ourselves from paleo, but but sort of. Um, reorienting what we're about with the primal blueprint, and certainly it's based on evolution, it's based on modern genetic science, but but not so much get caught up in the story of paleo and the lore, uh, and and go more in the direction of just what is the science telling us about uh, what's the latest research on gut health and the gut biome and and on um, mitochondrial biogenesis, and you know I've I've said from day one that I think humans are born with a factory setting that makes us obligate fat burners. And yet we very early in our, in our years, because of access to cheap sources of carbohydrates uh, that convert to glucose pretty quickly, that we, we basically turn off that fat burning mechanism because the body has no use for it anymore. And, and we, we become dependent on carbohydrates. The problem with that is that you are now you have to refuel every three or four hours. Otherwise you have low blood sugar and you have a whole host of, of uh, issues that that happen as a result of your having become dependent on glucose and and not good at burning fats and accessing ketones um, and so we uh, you know my, my again my I go back to the original 
premise here, which is I want to enjoy life. Part of my enjoying life is to enjoy every bite of food I eat. Part of that skill and that in- intuition that I talked about is knowing when I've had enough food and knowing when mm-hmm. to push the plate away and say, you know what, I don't, I'm not hungry for the next bite. I know there will be food around the corner. Uh, I know that uh, right now if I, if I eat until I'm full – I will have overeaten and I will be I will be uncomfortable for a certain period of time. I don't want to be uncomfortable. Again, I want to enjoy my life. So these are all sorts of these intuitive skills, but they don't they but they happen, they fall into sync because one of the things that we've done is we have turned ourselves back into that fat burning beast that we were at, at, at birth. We become better at accessing stored body fat, less reliant on carbohydrates and and less dependent, I should say, on their regular resupply to the extent that if you skip a meal, it's no big deal. Hey, I can – the 500 calories I would have taken off the plate, I'm now taking off my ass or my belly or whatever. Uh, just I'm getting – I'm good at accessing these stored body fats. Um, I'm a functioning human being who can go periods of time without eating and not have it derail me uh, You know, for the rest of the day where I have to – you know, throttle somebody unless they feed me or, or have, <laughs> right. you know, have to take a nap or, or have low blood sugar and, and, and make that my, uh, you know, my, my wine for the day. Uh, the, the skill of learning how to become uh, fat adapted is a great life skill. It's very empowering. Yeah. Did you, I, I'm curious, did you, I, I don't know your, your actual background story into the coming into this primal blueprint, did, were you one of the, like myself, I mean, I was one of those guys, I literally was eating every two to three hours, and if I didn't eat every two to three hours, I was an asshole to be around. I mean, I already am in general, but, you know, it was another order of magnitude worse uh, for people around me, so. Yeah, you know, before 9-11 and before, mm-hmm. before um, they would arrest you on the plane for being an asshole, um, <laughs> right. I would have been arrested because if I was on a cross-country trip that didn't have food mm-hmm. I, you know i would have said and what do you mean you only have pretzels i mean i would have uh ripped someone's head off if i if i had gone six hours without eating it was I, I was very dependent on carbs as a former uh endurance athlete who depended on 700 to a thousand grams of carbs a day mm-hmm. to fuel my ridiculous lifestyle uh if i didn't eat on a regular basis um, it manifested itself in all kinds of stuff, not the least among which even if I stopped training every day of my life when I when I worked at a real job and, not, and you know an eight to five job, I would have that two thirty feeling like, OK, I got to get a couch for my office because I need to take a nap every single day, right. um, you know, because my because I'm because of the fuzzy thinking that went away when I embraced this idea that I could become good at burning fat and I wasn't so dependent on carbohydrate. Isn't it so, you know, you, so you're at that point too, like, I feel like my life is so much better. I wish, I mean, I would give anything to be able to go back 20 years and understand this difference in how to eat, to have a better life and still have all the other things I wanted. I mean, like you said, it's so freeing. The flying, you know, a day of travel is the perfect example. You know, I was, I was like you, I like, I had to make sure I had food with me, you know, in this day and age, I would have been irate because you can't bring liquids onto the plane anymore. It would have been like, well, what am I supposed to do with my protein shake? Yeah. You know, (laughs) exactly. And and now it's like, ah, you know, whatever. So I might not get to eat till eight o'clock tonight. Not a big deal. Right. And people are amazed by that. And I'm like, you know, and that's 
what I think is one of the biggest travesties of a lot of these movements is even as popular as they are and in some ways as healthy as they help to make people, they're still astonished by the idea of being able to go most, if not the whole day without eating and still functioning at a high level. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a basic human skill. Yeah. And, um, it's, that's one thing that I want to, I mean, it really is the essence of the primal blueprint is if you're going to enjoy your life, make sure that you're not so dependent on food that, that your entire life revolves around, okay, we just had lunch. What's for dinner? Right. Which is, which is how a lot of people live their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, what's next? What's, what's the next meal that we're eating? Uh, and I just, um, I, as much as I love to eat and I'm a, I would consider myself a foodie, um, I really don't think that much about it because I have other things, you know, more, more pressing engagements than being distracted by what, what the next meal is. Right. Like a game of Frisbee as opposed to potentially a podcast. Um, that's only happened once <laughs> that I recall, but, uh, and it pro- it's likely not to happen again in this case, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it, it, it really is, um, a skill, a life skill that, uh, if you can do that, you can, you're, you're you know, you're on your way to ideal body composition. You're, you're on your way to getting sick less often because one of the reasons we get sick, it's kind of funny this, all this stuff does come back to this kind of skill. And one of the reasons we get sick, uh, and I used to get sick quite often, stress is, you know, is, is a immune suppressor. Um, if you are a sugar burner and you don't eat for six hours or eight hours, uh, the brain, which is now used to a regular supply of glucose and doesn't know how to burn the ketones that you're starting to manufacture because uh, it hasn't built a metabolic machinery to do that, uh, the brain says, holy shit, we're going to die. So it sends a signal to the adrenals to, to send out cortisol. So you're, mm-hmm. you've got this stress hormone secreted throughout the body, which has a couple of, of deleterious effects. Number one, it, it basically erodes muscle tissue so that a few amino acids could be sent to the liver to make more glucose to feed the brain. It shuts down all growth processes. So bones won't take in calcium. And that's probably one of the reasons why women who are under a lot of stress these days um, have low bone density, partly because they're just they're secreting so much cortisol uh, that they, no matter how many, they may be taking in 3,000 milligrams a day of supplemental calcium. It's just not doing anything because right. the bones are refusing it. Uh, and, it sh- and it suppresses the immune system. You know, in a stress situation, the body says basically, why should I allocate any resources to something that might kill me in two to three weeks or two to three months when I might not live the next two hours. So cortisol shuts down all body processes and the immune system is one of those things that goes along with it. Well, if that's the case, then you are susceptible within the next few hours to whatever microbe, you know, whatever doorknob you turn or what hands you shake or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, or, or, you know, uh, whatever, whatever contact you have with a germ is now, um, you know, going to be, um, ground zero because you don't have an immune system functioning at its at full capacity. All coming back to the fact that you didn't eat a meal because you were a sugar burner. Right. I mean, it's bizarre, but that's, I'm, I'm telling you, that's kind of how it goes down. So uh, this is actually a good, we're, we're getting uh, on towards the end of the hour, but this is something I've been very interested in lately uh, only because you know, when I was starting to get into all this stuff, it was, you know, the time of Paracone and all those guys that were like cortisol, the death hormone, which I think has followed us around quite a bit uh, for good reason. But there's a lot of research 
and even uh, newer kind of burgeoning research that's showing cortisol actually isn't really that bad and it doesn't have all the deleterious effects that we think it does unless, like you said, uh, to put it in that context, we're a sugar burner. If we are primarily a fat burner, cortisol actually does some great things. It helps us get rid of it or, you know, use any glycogen stores that might be in our liver or muscles. Um, it helps us to release body fat more effectively. It actually does not have the, say, distempered effect on uh, the immune system that we normally attribute it to. It It seems to be this, you know, if we're primarily a sugar burner or, you know, there happens to be insulin around and we have these stress responses, then the entire response is about as negative as it could possibly be. Um, but but if you take if you swap that and like you said go back to your kind of default state where you're a fat burner cortisol is actually just helps you get through those times in a very efficient way um as opposed to going through these massive kind of stress responses uh that that affect everything else down the line so i'm you know i i'm kind of of that opinion like what we need to do is is like you said in like the primal blueprint like my plans get you back to the state where your body is very good at burning fat and very comfortable at releasing fat. So when you do have these stressful events, the only thing that happens is you mobilize more body fat. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty simple in right. concept. And, uh, yet most, much of the medical community would say, Oh yeah, well that's just, you know, that's just a couple of guys without any MDs, you know, talking about, uh, a far-fetched theory, but I mean, with Mark's Daily Apple, we now have um, hundreds of thousands of user experiences. You know, we do almost two million uniques a month, and people people love the information, and they try the stuff out. You know, they do their experiments, and we hear from tens of thousands of these hundreds of thousands of user experiences, and um, the overwhelming response we get is, "Wow, this is really cool." Uh, you know, I've even among elite athletes, we, we, you know, athletes who assume their whole life was, was revolved around managing glycogen and uh, refueling with carbohydrate uh, to convert to glucose relatively rapidly in a race. Uh, now they're going low carb in their training. They're managing their carbs, what I would call an appropriate amount of carbs uh, in their racing, and they're racing better than ever. Um, you know, you made a comment earlier about the white potato, and I was going to mention um, back before the days of Gatorade and goo and, and the gels and all that crap, the cyclists on the Tour de France used to carry a baked, a cold baked potato in their back pocket. You know why? Because hmm. it converted to glucose faster than any other fuel. <sighs> so, you know, the original goo was a baked potato. <laughs> That's why a white baked potato registers 100 or above mm-hmm. on a glycemic index scale. It converts to glucose really rapidly. So if your intent is to add more glucose to your bloodstream – then baked potatoes are a great, a great choice. Right. They're a great choice. But if that's not your intent, or if, or if you're misguided in your, in your, in your attempts to um, re, reconfigure your fuel partitioning, um, it may not be such a great choice. It's it's funny on the front of performance. I'm, you know that that's actually I don't know. Fortunately, unfortunately, that's what made me popular was kind of this uh, how to use carbohydrates for performance. And you know, I always find. What's interesting to me is I can always get somebody's performance to increase, um, uh, I won't say an order of magnitude, but significantly 
just by you know moderating how they how they have their carbohydrates you know if they trained in a they train in a carbohydrate depleted state and then actually you get them to super compensate glycogen stores right before an event because you've done that usually you know even up to marathon runners um they find they don't need anything but water during the event i mean they they can store the glycogen and then by not disrupting it during the event, they have access to their glycogen stores at a level that they don't normally have access. So, you know, instead of, you know, constantly trying to supply nutrients while you're running, which can then interfere with um, the adrenal hormones that give you access to intramuscular glycogen stores, which, you know, I don't know how many people know, but, you know, your intramuscular glycogen can only be used in that muscle so, so giving yourself access to all those things is actually pretty simple and increases performance amazingly well because you're not interfering with your body's internal energy regulation. So while you can be uh, in a range where you have great oxidative capacity, you can mobilize a lot more fatty acids both in the muscles and in the body to support that activity, but you've got access to all of your supplemental glycogen as well. I mean, it's it's like the perfect storm and it really isn't that difficult to stage it that way. And, you know, depending on the event or the length of the event, you don't even have to worry about fueling during the event. You know, you, you'll feel better. You'll perform better. Uh, strongman competitions are one of the few things where I found the athlete during the competition has to, t- has to start taking in some sort of nutrition. And then, you know, in some cases, Ironman athletes as well. But those are serious uh, power output over long periods of time. Yeah, but even you know, look at Ben Greenfield uh, and his mm-hmm. experiment last summer. He did minimal training and uh, went ketogenic up until uh, his Ironman event and just didn't quite – this becomes a uh, an exercise in glycogen management more than anything mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And the idea is you want to run out of glycogen – uh, two and a half feet before the finish line so that you collapse across the finish line. Right. Well, he, he ran out of glycogen um, with a half marathon to go. He was do- having a great day um, doing basically a ketogenic race. Uh, and then when the wheels fell off, because I think he got, he think he knows he went too hard uh, for the amount of training he'd, he'd been doing, he did have to finally supplement with some gels to get him through the race. So g- the gels become rocket fuel. They just become, mm-hmm. once you go there, you can't go back. Once you go to the gels, if you want to finish the thing, you got to be slamming them down every 15 minutes to get you through. But um, do you know Sammy Inkinen? No, I don't actually. Okay, so Sammy and his wife uh, just rode a boat across the Pacific from California to Hawaii in 45 days. They set, wow. they set the record. Uh, Sammy... <clears throat> Uh, and so he, they, they, they had, they, they did so with like no carbs on the boat. They had a million calories of fat and basically some nice. protein and no carbs. So they, it was the, in fact, their whole, uh, their, they were raising money for this and, uh, it was, their website is called fatchancerow.org. So they set the record. They trained low carb. That's awesome. And Sammy's gone under nine hours at Ironman on minimal training and, uh, and low carb, uh, eating styles. So mm-hmm. he's a good example of a guy who I think you, you just, you haven't, begun to see the sorts of results that we're going to get. Um, a guy this summer just set the, the world record for the 100-mile run eating low-carb and training low-carb. So the longer the distance, the more appropriate it is to ditch the carbs as, as a, a part of your training, to become good at burning fat, uh, to become efficient at, at, at a output, the highest possible output with the highest possible fat 
percentage that you're burning and managing your glycogen stores that way. Uh, and we're going to start to see some some world records fall in those two hour plus events as people tap into this technology. And it will require some combination of both. So you're going to have to train low carb and, and mm-hmm. at some point spend days or weeks ketogenic and then come out and do sort of a cyclic right. ketogenic ex- uh, 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 experience in order to maximally upregulate mitochondrial biogenesis because at the at its mm-hmm. very ultimate this is about how much mitochondria you have and how efficient they are at putting fat through so if you double the mitochondria and you can put twice the amount of fat through you can generate a lot more power and speed at the same output as the guy across the road who you're running or cycling with who's a who's a sugar burner mm-hmm. um it's it's a very exciting field right now in terms of this uh uh, performance based on uh, low carb training, but then carbohydrate management during the event itself. Yeah, I like that's one thing that I've you know worked on with people and kind of been focused on. And it's interesting you you mentioned the the mitochondria. We've been talking about that, and you know the the conversations about mitochondria are you know interesting. We talk about mitochondrial biogenesis, and you've got fusion and fission and how that affects the efficiency and health. But, you know, on, on the carb side of things, when people try to play devil's advocate or they're really in favor of carbs, talking about, oh, well, you know, carbs are highly efficient and, you know, so on and so forth, and they can be used in the glycolytic cycle. Um, but, but what they don't know or don't realize or don't talk about is that, you know, the carbohydrates, because of the oxidative products that they can produce as they're turned to, uh, pyruvate so they can be burned in the citric acid cycle um, that those actually can damage the trans the electron transporters essentially of the mitochondrial membrane so you you get what they call carbonylation which actually decreases the efficiency of the mitochondria to produce ATP so it it's amazing all these effects not only do you get more mitochondria if you train without carbs but you get mitochondria that are actually more efficient at creating ATP if you're not eating carbs. I mean, you just get this, you know, compilation of effects that you should instantly see increases in endurance, uh, especially over these longer periods of time. And you do almost, you know, every time without fail. And what I think is also missed between these, you know, and you just, you nailed it, Mark, with it's about glycogen management is when you look at long-term ketogenic studies and endurance um, versus long-term carb studies and endurance. It's like, oh, well, if they're on those diets long enough, their performance is always kind of the same. But what I think is really interesting that nobody notices, I guess, is if you look at the transition studies where they say, okay, this group was extremely high carb. We're going to put them on low carb for a week and then check their endurance. <laughs> they have like this phenomenal increase Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because they went; they were low carb, and it wasn't because you know they were, um, you know, it wasn't just because of the low carb shift. It's really what you just said. It's that glycogen management. They've had a week to where their body can manage their glycogen levels more effectively, and then you put them through whatever that test is, and that transition period has given them the opportunity to be slightly more fat adapted. Probably run on that longer because they've gone through that that. Um, you know, adaptation phase, so to speak. And then they've still got glycogen reserves left over for the event. You know, almost every time in every one of those transition studies that uses a very short period of time to, to check the results, 
you get this big boost in performance, and it always disappears after that. Um, yes, yeah, that's that's really really key, you know, because like you said, I think the and it's it, like Mark said, I think it is that management of glycogen and and how you you know how you how you how that works, and those those um, those short term studies I think really kind of show that factor of how you can really. Um, Massage the system depending on what you're doing and how you are taking in your carbohydrates in respect to your training. So I think that's really an important aspect to keep in mind. It gets lost um, from um, academics versus you know non-academics. Well, and then you have uh, situations where uh, you've got classically trained athletes who are all basically carbohydrate based sugar burners mm-hmm. coming into a situation where you're going to switch them over to fat burning, but only for a short period of time because the you know the funding of the study wouldn't allow for long-term studies, right? So you get some you get some short-term um, interesting data, but but what we're starting to see now uh, are the effects of people who've been doing this for years. So you see Peter Atia, um, you know, you see um, Finney and Volick who have been ketogenic, basically age group competent age group athletes for years. Yeah. You see Sammy Inkinen who's been doing this for years. Um, I saw it with. Um, um, Dave Zabriskie, who I worked with for a little bit, the cyclist, um, who was low carb for over a year and doing work in the gym. So what happens is you, you, you know, you, there's an adaptation phase, you get some short term, uh, results, but maybe you lose your top end. Well, for, mm-hmm. for an endurance athlete to lose his top end, um, a guy who is a cyclist who has to make it, you know, has to break away or jump to catch a breakaway on a hill, uh, you can't afford to, to lose your top end and stay competitive. But what these guys are noticing then that you lose your top end at first, but as you adapt further and further, mm-hmm. you regain that top end power. So now you not only now you you regain the top end, you might even improve with your top end, and you still have this ability to manage glycogen to the extent that you can you can be going at an RQ of you know seventy five when a guy across from you is is at eighty eight or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he's he's burning largely carbohydrate, and he might be going the same speed as you up a hill, but all of a sudden he's going to hit the wall before you do because you're managing your glycogen better. You're better at not only accessing fats, um, but you're, but you're burning fewer carbohydrates, uh, because you've worked on your, on your top end. Um, you, you're actually just more efficient in terms of your muscular, uh, power output. And ultimately, and this is probably one of the more, um, interesting areas of expert of, of exploration. Um, you know, Tim Noakes came up with this central governor theory of the brain years ago, which basically said, well, for the longest time, we've been saying you hit the wall when your muscles run out of glycogen. But really, maybe you hit the wall when your brain runs out of glucose, glucose yeah. and, and says um, it's it is counterintuitive for us to keep doing this shit. Let's pull over and take a nap. Right. And and where some people have gotten themselves into trouble are these endurance athletes who are so good at overriding that that um, frontal lobe and you know and uh, or excuse me overriding with the frontal lobe the the limbic system which says pull over and take a nap and they're going no 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 we're, we can we can dig deeper we can go to the well one more time mm-hmm. now they really trash their bodies I mean they, I've had friends of mine who were world class marathoners you know come to me and say you know what I feel like I took two years off my life in that race. <laughs> Um, and it could be could be true. Now, if you're a fat burner, if you become fat adapted and keto adapted, your brain is now able to um, your brain isn't shutting you down. Their brain is saying, look, uh, we run well on ketones. 
Um, we don't need that much glucose. Uh, I don't feel like I have to take a nap yet. Um, there's still, you know, we're still going at, a, at an output that we can sustain for a lot longer than we think. And um, it may be that that's another aspect of, of this ketogenic, low-carb uh, uh, training, and that would be just the ability to, to not just manage muscle glycogen, but to, uh, to use your brain a little bit more efficiently in managing the power output over a, a long span of time. Yeah, that's interesting because there, there's also studies um, that parallel that in resistance training because usually, you know, resistance training, we're like, oh, you know, you, you hit failure because you, you know, um, couldn't produce ATP fast enough or whatever. You know, there's all these excuses, except when we, you test that, you find out you, your ATP supply never gets depleted below like a half. You know, the only thing that ever gets depleted is uh, creatine phosphate and you don't necessarily need that. So, you know, they started looking and it turns out as blood flow decreases to the brain in certain resistance training, that triggers the event of failure, uh, which which parallels exactly with what you're talking about, except, you know, in a different different realm with the in, endurance training. So, no, but you're right. You know, in the it's gym, the same thing. You know, people people think they've hit failure at 12 repetitions, but then a hot chick walks into the room. And there's two more repetitions. <laughs> right. For sure. Right. The brain you overrides know? at that point. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so it's possible that there are more repetitions left in. You know, it's just uh, the brain is doing its um, its uh, survival uh, routine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, we've we've covered uh, quite a few bases. Any. Any last comments? I think we're right at the hour, if I'm not mistaken. Um, no, it's just uh, I would like to um, mention that we just launched our Primal Blueprint Expert Certification Program. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, that's an online training course, uh, 13 modules, uh, exam at the end of each module, uh, designed to dig really deeply into what it means to be primal and to – uh, to craft an eating strategy for yourself or for your patients. So this course is designed for doctors, uh, for chiropractors, for physicians, assistants, nurses, personal trainers, life coaches, and for individual individual people who just want to say, look, I, I, I dig this primal thing, this concept. I want to know more about it. I want to, I want to get fully into understanding not just what to do and how to do it, but why when I do that, it works this way. Right. And we've we've had a lot of people sign up for this course already. It's very exciting because I, I get that there are a lot of people who who understand that they can incorporate this technology into their practice. So uh, where where can everybody basically so find to, everything? Yeah, so primalblueprint.com is where you can register for the certification. Okay. Um, but you can also uh, find out more about everything that we do at marksdailyapple.com. That's always the go-to place. That's the blog where um, where all the – the cool articles hang out and uh yeah i've enjoyed being with you guys yeah thanks uh, enjoyed having you on the show we'll make sure we have links to uh pretty much everything mark sisson related on the podcast so people can find out and i've got to tell you that's one of the first newsletters i was ever exposed to was mark's daily apple and it was just like brilliant just the name of it is brilliant i've got to say that was i don't know if that was your idea but if it was it's like one of the most brilliant pieces of marketing I think ever is the name of that newsletter. Well, I appreciate blog. that because because the name Mark Sisson was taken. <laughs> 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 was taken. 
<laughs> oh, okay. So, uh, so well, thank you for saying that because every once in a while I go, that's a silly little name for a blog, you know, whatever. But no, it's it's brilliant because it it really catches and it's like, you know, it it resonates with the old Apple a day keeps the doctor away kind of thing, it. and it's yep. yeah, yep. it's just really well done. So. Thanks for being on the show, and thanks for you know everything you've done over the years, Mark, and that you continue to keep doing. My pleasure. I appreciate uh, hanging out with you guys, and you keep up the good work yourselves. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Yep. And uh, that's another episode of Body IOFM, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it, and uh, make sure to check out Mark's website. The links are below, and you know, feel free to like us on iTunes, give us reviews. Always helpful. That's a wrap. You've been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance. So have you ever heard people on carb night where they, they'll have their carb night and the following morning, of course, they'll weigh themselves and they'll be up whatever X amount of pounds they'll be up. And then the second day after carb night, they're up an additional pound or two? No. If, if they didn't train. <clears throat> I have not heard that one before. So it happens to me every single carb night. If I don't, so like I had a carb night Saturday, I was up like three pounds. No big deal. It's all yeah. water. Yep. And then I woke up this morning and I was up another pound. And like it's like that all the time. It's so weird. And I didn't like Is I didn't it like possibly because you didn't hydrate enough? Oh maybe, I don't know. So but you I, mean, I did I didn't change my hydration status. I mean that's kinda of do what I do. Well no, no, no. What I mean is so when that does that happens to you every time you don't train. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I pretty much yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so if you had those carbs Saturday night You've got all this glycogen. You stored some water. There's water weight gain there, but you didn't store right. enough for the amount of carbs you stored. So you could then store more through the day on Sunday. More water, up. you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. To compensate. Got it. Or if I didn't drink enough on uh, Saturday night, on the carb night itself, if I didn't drink enough of water or whatever it would be. Yeah, I, well, you know, it, it's even possible that maybe you couldn't. I mean, you wouldn't be, you would store the carbs faster than... <laughs> Your body will allow you to absorb the water to to take in with it. So, so this take a little bit of time for the water to, to <clears throat> follow. Yes, got it. That makes sense. <laughs>